Good evening. Today we're going to bring forth the second part of the firstborn and Passover. That second part being our second teaching in this particular segment, but it is part five on the firstborn. And let's open in prayer today. Father, we come before you and ask for your son to be shown evidently in this nation. This nation seems to be in great disarray and war in the streets. We ask, Father, that you would make your son known because that is truly the only thing that can quell what is violence that has been brought up in people's hearts nowadays. We ask that you would do this. We ask that you would bring unity through Christ in this nation and in this world. And today, Father, for this message... We ask that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would be manifested through your scriptures so that we can see what he has accomplished in complete reality. Father, give me the mouth to be able to speak your word. Give me a clear mind to be able to think, to be able to listen to the Spirit as you direct me in your word today to manifest your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this. Amen. Today, we're going to pick up where we left off looking at Hebrews 11.28 with regards to the firstborn in connection with Passover. And this will be, as I said, the fifth installment in the series on the firstborn. We looked at portions of Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy 16 in laying the foundation through isagogics in preparation for us entering into the New Testament. Remember, isagogics is the historical background. In the realm of that exploration, of those passages that we... And we we ask a question in the realm of the exploration of those passages... And that question was, why did Yahweh kill all the firstborn males, both man and beast in the land of Egypt, who didn't have the blood on their doorposts that night? Going along with that question, we saw in Psalm 136, verses 10 and 11, that the Lord's steadfast love, which endures forever, is intimately, intimately woven into the killing of the firstborn. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. When we're afraid to ask questions in the scriptures, then we're cheating ourselves out of 
the Spirit of Truth doing what he was sent to do in John 16, verses 13 through 15. And that is, he's to glorify Christ by guiding us into the truth. So when, we're, when we don't ask questions, we're actually cheating ourselves out of the divine privilege that we have been given of the Holy Spirit in us, teaching us. Because he guides us into all the truth. And that's what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. He guided them in the truth in Luke 24. And we can have that same unveiling by the Spirit because he takes what is Christ and declares it to us. The Spirit, that is, takes what is Christ and declares it to us. Now, if we seek wisdom like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then we're going to understand the knowledge of the Lord in Proverbs 2, 4 through 5. And that's what I hope to convey today in regards to our question about the firstborn in Egypt. And in doing so, see another aspect of our study of the word prototokos, the Greek word prototokos. And how that's linked to the Passover in Hebrews 11.28. Again, prototokos, the Greek word for firstborn, is transliterated into the English P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. Prototokos. And that's the series that we're in now. But it's in connection with the Passover in our passage in Hebrews 11.28. So again... I want to give my translation of Hebrews 11.28, and then we'll start putting meat on the bones of the content that we brought forth in our last message. Hebrews 11.28, By faith, he, that is Moses, instituted the Passover and the pouring of the blood in order that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The Greek word, which I translated as pouring, is prokousis. And that's transliterated into the English P-R-O-S-C-H-U-S-I-S, prokousis. It's only used once in the New Testament, and that's in this verse. I translated it as pouring with help of A.T. Robertson, who cites Exodus 12:22 right in our passage of Exodus where we were last week and in that passage Moses instructs the people to take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch it on the lentil and the two doorpost with the blood that is in the basin Therefore, the blood of the lamb without blemish on the 14th of a bib was gathered in a basin as it poured forth from the slain substitute so that it could be applied to the lentil and the two doorposts, thus ensuring that the Lord would pass over the house and not bring death to any of the firstborn which were inside. This blood on the lentil and the doorpost served to show that a death had taken place. 
specifically a substitutionary death. It wasn't the blood itself that protected the house. Rather, it was what the blood represented. So it is in Hebrews 9, 14 through 17, where the blood is equated with a substitute. And the reality of that substitute is Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Now, let's take a look at what we covered previously and show how that was a teaching aid for what Jesus would accomplish in reality. Said another way, Yahweh was demonstrating by these events in Egypt what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would accomplish on earth and in heaven by making peace through the blood of his cross. He would use earthly things, earthly things. He would use earthly things for which we have a frame of reference and can comprehend to describe the wisdom of God in in heavenly realities which the Son of Man would bring to completion by his sacrificial substitutionary death for all. John 3, 1 through 12. That's where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. In connection with Colossians 1.20 and Job 11.7-9 in principle. As we recall, the Lord instituted a new calendar. He instituted a new calendar for Israel to start their year in the month of Abib. When they were freed from the slavery of Egypt. In Exodus 12.2, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This, this groundbreaking event was so huge. It was so huge that Yahweh wanted to alter Israel's current calendar to start with this month. This depicts a new beginning. A new beginning for Israel. And the event, which, which was the catalyst for that was the Passover and the killing of the firstborn in Egypt. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, we're starting to, we're starting to see things. We're going to start to see things now. On the night that Christ was betrayed in Luke 22.20, he took the cup and said, this is the cup poured out for you. And this is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. This new covenant, which Christ brings about through the cross, will make that which was old obsolete in Hebrews 8.13. Even, even as Israel's original calendar was made null and void, and a new one was inaugurated. Paul he would tell us that the new creation is present in Christ and the old has passed away. And whoever is living in that by means of the Spirit, whoever is living in that in Christ by means of the Spirit, they're operating in that new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
while still in these mortal bodies, we have the opportunity to live, listen, in the new calendar, in the new calendar of the Lord, which is the new creation brought about by the cross. While we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Even though we were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, to the covenants and the promise, we have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Romans 5.10 in connection with Ephesians 2.12 and 13. Now this invisible new calendar slash new creation, we're kind of blending them both together. We're showing the reality of what Exodus 12 was talking about. So this invisible new calendar slash new creation will one day be evident to all when the one seated on the throne says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, each point that I'm grazing by tonight can be expanded ad infinitum. But we're just touching on them to give the overarching view of the Passover. Just touching on them. Now, moving on to the day. To the day when the lamb without blemish was to be selected from the flock for the purpose of being the sacrifice for that household. We see that in Exodus 12, 3, on the 10th day of the month of Abib, they were to select the lamb from the flock according to the father's household. One animal, one animal per household. The Net Bible has an interesting note concerning this verse, actually. Quote from the Net Bible on... Exodus 12, 3, Exodus 12, 3, quote, The expression, Father's house, is a common expression for a family. Here, the Passover is to be a domestic institution. Each lamb was to be shared by family members. Now, that in itself is telling, but if we continue into Exodus 12.4, we see that if the family in Israel was too small, then they were to link up with the nearest neighbor according to the number in their household. Then they were to share the lamb so that nothing would be left in the morning. Isaiah 49.6, the father, in speaking to the servant who is his son, Jesus Christ, in speaking to him, he says, it's too small, it's too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to recover the dispersion of Israel. It's too small of a thing. Behold, I give you for the covenant of a race. For a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. There's only one race. And Jesus Christ was given as a covenant for that race, the human race. 
I just actually restrained myself from saying a whole bunch of stuff. It went through my mind really quickly, and I said, no, I'm going to stay on point here. The tenth of a bib is five days from the fourteenth, which is Passover, when the lamb was to be slain at twilight. Tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth. It's five days. John 12.1 gives us a time frame and tells us that six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. We see that he ate dinner that night at the home of Lazarus, the one whom he raised from the dead. Now, if we skip a little bit into that chapter, skip a little bit ahead into that chapter, into John 12.12, it explains that the next day, the day after he ate dinner with Lazarus, the next day, which would be five days before it was Passover, the next day a large crowd, which had come out for the feast, gathered because they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Remember, it's six, it was six days before Passover when he ate with Lazarus, and the next day, which was five days there's this big crowd because all the crowds gathered in Jerusalem at that time for Passover. We're going to see about that later on. So it was five days before Passover, making it the tenth of a bib. John goes on to tell of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey. Now, if we use scriptural congruency in Mark 11, 1 through 10, and Luke 19, 29 through 40, the scene becomes clearer in that the people were rejoicing and praising God, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When the Pharisees heard this, they were, they were pretty ticked off. And they told Jesus, you got to stop them. you got to stop them from shouting like this and praising. And what did Christ say? He says in Luke 19.40, he said, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. Why? Why would... The stones cry out if they weren't crying out in rejoicing that the king was there. Because the father had selected the lamb from the flock for his household to be the substitute for his family. Galatians 4.4. 4. It was the tenth of a bib. That's why the rocks would shout if it wasn't for them shouting. This is why Jesus took on flesh so that he could enter into his creation and bring back that which was lost. For the one who sanctifies, that's Christ, and those who are sanctified, that's us, they all have one source in Hebrews 2.11. Even as Jesus in John 6, speaking metaphorically, 
which the people got all bent out of shape about that too because they thought that he was speaking literally. But when he was speaking metaphorically in John 6, he says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He said this as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, according to John one twenty nine. This Lamb, this Lamb of God was foreknown before the foundation of the world as the one who would thoroughly straighten that which was made crooked in the garden. 1 Peter one twenty in connection with Hebrews 9.10. Now I'm making a lot of connections at the end of these sentences, if you will, that I'm, I'm saying. And if you write these verses down and you look them up, you're going to see an explosion of insights. Because we don't have time to get into all of these verses. We don't. There's just no way. Christ as the Son of God was faithful over God's house in Hebrews 3, 6. And that house is where he makes his dwelling in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For I will be their God and they shall be my people, he says. Even as Jesus says in John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In my Father's house, there's many rooms. And we're going to see that this is not just for some who he goes to prepare a place for in his Father's house, but it's for all. Now, moving on, in order that we can see the horizon of the landscape for which the event in the Exodus depicts, I want you to remember this principle that these things which were commanded by God for Israel to do were teaching aids to show what Jesus Christ would accomplish in his sacrifice on the cross. Let's not forget that God declares the end from the beginning in Isaiah 46.10. So he's showing us in earthly things, such as the Lamb, for the Israelites on Passover, what Christ would do as the Son of God and the Son of Man on a universal, heavenly scale for all creation on the cross. So when the Israelites were commanded in Exodus 12.6 to keep the lamb, to keep this lamb, that they took from the flock to keep this lamb, which was taken from the flock until the 14th day of the month of Abib. We understand, we understand this was God showing beforehand when Jesus Christ would give himself as a sacrifice for our sin because no man takes his life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, he says in John ten eighteen. Remember, before this, he didn't want anybody to know, really, that he was the Messiah. He said, "Go, don't, don't tell anybody that I just healed you from being blind for, from birth. 
I mean, it was evident that he was, and he didn't hide it, but he said, just let's keep it quiet. But at this time, because it was the 10th of Abib, he said, if these don't shout out, then the rocks are going to shout out because the lamb was selected from the flock. Now, when using scriptural congruency in looking at the four Gospels, we come across passages which have presented some difficulty for scholars and exegetes over the years. Now, I'm specifically referring to Jesus eating what is traditionally called the Last Supper and eating it with his disciples and rectifying that with his crucifixion on the day of Passover. Now, put another way, there are those who think that Jesus ate an early Passover, while others believe that it wasn't a Passover meal. Still others believe that Jesus ate this meal with his disciples on the 14th of Abib, which was Passover, and was crucified on the 15th, which is the first day of unleavened bread. Now, the reason why I say that is sufficient to say for today that I am of the conviction as of now, as of now, that Christ did not, did not eat the Passover meal with his disciples. And he was crucified on the 14th of Abib, which was the day of Passover. That is my conviction as of now. And I feel that I can make a pretty compelling argument for it, for my position, especially through scriptural congruency and taking into account the way that Jesus spoke with his disciples. And I'm by no means alone on the stance either. Others make an argument for the same point that I'm making. However, we're not going to get into that today because... That will take way too long, and that would, for me to make my point clearly on that, my position clearly, it would take at least one, possibly two messages for me to make that point clear and to do it, to do it justice. Now, I say all that because there are adroit students in this congregation, and I want you to know where I'm coming from in the second half of this teaching. Now, adroit, A-D-R-O-I-T, adroit means skillful. So I don't want you to think that I'm coming from somewhere that I'm not. Getting back to Exodus 12, 6, the people of Israel were to keep the lamb until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole assembly was to kill their lambs at twilight. And we learned from our last message from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary that twilight was the interval between the beginning of the the sun's decline in the sky and sunset. And now this corresponds to our 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now I want you to listen to this very carefully. We learn from Mark... 1525, that it was the third hour 
when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the third hour. Now Mark is using Jewish time, which begins the hours at daylight, so it would coincide with hour 9 a.m. Now don't be confused about what I just said. The Jewish entire day, the start of their day, their calendar day. It's counted from sunset to sunset. While we start our calendar day at midnight, they start theirs at sunset. And like I said, we start ours at midnight. They begin theirs right after the sun completely goes down or sunset. Now, they begin counting their daylight hours at dawn. That's when they begin counting their daylight hours. Therefore, it was the third hour, or 9 a.m. our time, when Jesus was crucified. Now, remember, the chief priests and the scribes wanted to arrest Jesus in secret. And so they sent a party who was led by Judas in the cover of night in Matthew 26, 3 through 5, in connection with Luke 22, 47. Now, they did this for multiple reasons. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible note on Luke twenty-two sixty-six is very helpful here, listing three points about, their, about why they did this. And I'm going to quote these three points. Quote, number one, No trial could be held on the morning of a feast day that is Passover. Number two, there was no formal defense offered for Jesus. Number three, the verdict was reached in one day and not two days required for capital offenses. So they completely circumvented all the the correct procedures for having a trial. Another reason, now this is me now, another reason for arresting Jesus in the cover of night was that they wanted this all to be done before the feast happened. They didn't want to do it during the feast lest the people would riot in Mark 14, 22. So they wanted it all done before the feast happened. This is why they hurried all this and they cried out for Jesus to be crucified to Pilate early in the morning. Hence, Jesus was nailed to the cross on Golgotha at the third hour or 9 a.m. our time. Now, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, talking Jewish time, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour in Jewish time, Hour 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., darkness fell upon the whole land, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 45 through 46. Now, very shortly after this, he said, It is finished, which is tetelestai in the Greek, the name of our church, and exhaled because his work was done. 
He yielded up his spirit because no man took his life from him, but he laid it down. And he did this around 3 o'clock our time, or the ninth hour according to Jewish time, which is twilight. This is the same time the Israelites in Egypt were instructed to kill the Passover lamb in Exodus 12.6. The same time. And this was teaching, this was a teaching aid to show what Jesus would accomplish in reality. In reality. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross in Philippians 2 8. <clears throat> now, as we saw in Deuteronomy 16, 5 through 6, when Israel came into the promised land. They were no longer to sacrifice the Passover lambs in their homes, but rather where the Lord would choose for his name to dwell. I hope you remember that from our last teaching. And that was Jerusalem, and more specifically, the temple. This being the case... The ironic part, the ironic part of it all, is at the very time when Jesus was finishing his work on the cross and breathed out his spirit to the Father, listen closely, hundreds of thousands of lambs were being brought to the temple in order for them to be sacrificed. Hundreds of thousands of lambs. To prove this point, I have a quote from Josephus, who didn't believe in Christ at all. I have a quote from Josephus when he was estimating the number of people who came to Jerusalem during the Passover feast because he was given the task of estimating how many people were in Jerusalem. This was around A.D. 70. And there was one really good way to do it. Now, this is from the Wars of the Jews in section 6, 9, 3. In other words, there's a, a large section, 6, and a, and, a, and a subsection within 6, 9, and then there's another subsection, and that is 3. Verses 423 through 425. Quote, So these high priests, upon the coming of the feasts, feast, which was called Passover, when they slay the sacrifices from the ninth hour till the eleventh. But so that a company not less than ten belonging to every sacrifice, for it is not lawful for them to feast singularly by themselves, and many are and many of us are twenty in a company, found the number of sacrifices was 256,500 upon the allowance of no more than 10 that feast together amounts the, to 2,700,200 persons that were pure and holy. In other words, let me make this clear. In other words, what Josephus is saying here is he needed to get a count on how many people were 
in Jerusalem at the time. And this is how he figured out about how many people died in Jerusalem at that time. Because he said they got a count from the priest how many lambs they sacrificed on the day of Passover. It seems astronomical if we think about it. But these, it wasn't just one priest there doing this. There was many, many priests that were doing this. And if we look back into the Old Testament, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he slaughtered thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals in the dedication of the temple. So the priests, this is what they did. And they did it fast, and they did it well, and they did it with precision, according to what the commandment says. And when he says, when he counts the people that were pure and holy, that does not take into account, just to give you an understanding of what he's saying in here, that does not take into account, what, as he goes later in this passage to describe, the lepers, the women who were menstruating, all others who were unclean that couldn't go to the temple. It doesn't take into account then. So there was even more people in Jerusalem that time when it was sacked by Rome. But my point of all this is, is what he's saying is that the priest counted the lambs which were sacrificed on that particular Passover in A.D. 70 or near A.D. 70. And there were 256,500 which were slain that day. And that's how he figured out how many people were in Jerusalem, accounting that at least 10 people were per, per sacrifice. And like he said, sometimes you had 20 in a company. So hundreds of thousands of lambs were getting ready to be sacrificed at the time when Jesus, the true Lamb of God, was dying for the sins of the world. And don't you know that probably some of those very same priests who were getting ready to sacrifice those lambs in the t at the temple, probably some of those very same priests in A.D. 30 there, were involved in the plot to put Christ on the cross, who was the complete reality of what they were about to do in the temple. How blind they were at that time. They wanted to keep up the ritual, but the reality was right in front of them, and they put them on a cross. But that was God's plan the whole time, because he knew exactly when he wanted his son to go into history. I was thinking about this. If God would have sent his son into history around David's time, he wouldn't have been crucified. Because David knew what God was, his plan was for a sacrifice. He knew his plan. He knew that he preferred all humanity, and was going to redeem it. So David wouldn't have put his son on a cross. 
But at the right time, God sent his son, and he knew that that was the right time to send it. Again, as I said last week, God knows the end from the beginning, and he incorporates even the negative decisions of people into his plan to bring about his ultimate end, which is salvation for all. So he knew exactly when to send his son. So these priests were getting ready to sacrifice lambs at the temple while Christ finished his work on the cross. Now you may be asking why Jesus was crucified outside of the city. If God said the sacrifice of the Passover lamb was to be where his name would choose to dwell in Deuteronomy 16. Excuse me. And again, we said that was the temple where his name would dwell. Remember, in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not. And then he says, See, your house has been left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, implying that they will say it when they see him again. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Because of the rejection of Messiah, who was what all these types and symbols were pointing to. Because of his rejection, the temple was no longer where the Father's name was dwelling. Rather, rather, it was in Christ. As he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And therefore, God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself, not counting the world's trespasses against them, in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Hence the reason why he was crucified outside of the city. Because that's where, wherever Christ was, that's where the, the Father was dwelling. And he no longer was dwelling in the temple. Because the reality of that temple was hanging on a cross. And the reality of the lamb that was being slain or was about to be slain. I don't know that they went through it because of what happened after he gave, his, gave up the spirit. The rocks split. Dead came out of the tombs. The temple curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. They may have halted what they were going to do because a lot of them tore their clothes and said, what did we do? <clears throat> Now, I have to hit this next point really quickly in order to get to our main question before we run out of time. Exodus 12.10 makes the point that none of the lambs shall remain until morning. Whatever is not eaten shall be burned. Why? Why is this point stressed by God to Moses? Remember, all this is a teaching 
And it's a teaching aid to Israel at the time of what the Messiah would accomplish on the cross. Now, usually, usually the bodies that were crucified on the cross were left to rot there. And the birds would pick at their flesh. They were just left there to rot. But because the next day was the first day of unleavened bread. Think back to our last teaching. Because it was the first day of unleavened bread and was a holy convocation. The Jews didn't permit anything dead to defile their land. John 19.31 in connection with Deuteronomy 21.23. Isn't that funny? Isn't that hilarious? They were still sticking to these rules and regulations above the reality, which was Christ. We can't allow anything to defile our land. The next day, this is the preparation day, which is Passover. But the next day is a holy convocation to the Lord. And tonight is Passover. We got to get these bodies taken down. The next day wasn't just any Sabbath. It wasn't just any old Sabbath, but it was one of the seven holy convocations mentioned in Leviticus 23, which we touched on last week. Now, more could be said about that, but we don't have time in this message. I just wanted to hit that so that you had an idea of why that is. But what we have to do now in order to get this in, we got to go to our question. We got to go to our question. Why did why did Yahweh kill all the firstborn males, both man and beast, in the land of Egypt, who didn't have the blood on their doorpost that night? Why? And how is this tied to his steadfast love, which endures forever? Exodus 12, 12 through 13 explains that the Lord went through Egypt that night and killed all the firstborn males, both man and beast. And in that way, he executed judgment on the gods of Egypt. Small g. But when we see, when he sees the blood which signifies the death of the sacrifice on the door, he would pass over and not strike anyone down from that house. Hebrews eleven twenty five through 26. In the portion about Moses in the chapter of Faith Heroes, it equates the pleasures of sin with the treasures of Egypt. Even as Israel, I hope you're, I hope you're going to follow this. Sin, the pleasures of sin with the treasures of Egypt. In other words, sin and Egypt. Even as the Israelites were slaves to Egypt for 430 years in Exodus 12, 40. 
Paul says that we were once, we were once slaves to sin in Romans 6.20. But this slavery, it wasn't for 430 years. Rather, it came into the world by Adam in the garden through one trespass in Romans 5. So it was a whole lot longer than 430 years. And the result of sin was that death entered and began to reign. The result of sin was that death entered entered and began to reign. In Romans 6:23, Paul makes a financial analogy with regards to sin and death, saying that the wages of sin is death. It's a financial analogy. The wages of sin is death. In other words, what you're paid from sin is death. But James, in his epistle, brings forth a maternal analogy with regards to sin and death. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates James 1.15 this way. Then after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Paul essentially brings out the same point in Romans 5.12, saying that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. He essentially is saying the same thing, that death was born out of sin. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, in speaking with his two disciples, interpreted in all the scriptures, where did he begin? Oh yeah, beginning with Moses. Beginning with Moses, all the things concerning himself in Luke 24, 27. Do you think he touched on the Passover? Oh, you better believe he did. You better believe he did. So if we look at the Passover in Egypt in the light of its complete reality, that being Christ, we see that the one who knew no sin became sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That goes right back to Jacob and Esau where we kicked off our series on Jacob and Esau If you remember, this series is in the wake of that. In other words, what was was the visible tracks of that? This series came out of the visible tracks, and we're seeing that now. And not only that, that he became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, but not only that, but we know that from Hebrews 2, 9, through 15, or we should know if we've been paying attention in Pastor Knapp's Hebrew series, that he tasted death for everyone so that he would free us from the power of death, which had us in lifelong slavery. He tasted it for everyone so that he could free us from the power of death. Therefore, 
when we see Psalm 136, 10 and 11. When we see it in a Christocentric light, we understand why his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel, Israel brought him out from among them. For his steadfast love endures forever. It screams out now. It screams out his steadfast love endures forever. He transferred us. Thanks be to God who transferred us from the kingdom of darkness or from the power of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. He brought Israel out. He brought us out. You're no longer enslaved to sin anymore. And death has no power over you. Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1.18, destroyed the power of the firstborn of sin, which is death. And he did this on the cross and in his resurrection. And because of that, he says, Death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And at the restoration of all things in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, when all his enemies are put under his feet, death will be utterly destroyed. And the victory then will be evident to all. That victory that only those who have eyes now can see that victory at that point will be evident to all. Now, if we link up 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 with Colossians 1.20 and Romans 5.18, we see clearly that all, all, all creation is hid securely in the house of God while he destroys the firstborn of sin, which is death. We're all, his whole creation is hid within his house. When Jesus Christ destroys that which was outside of his creation but came in, he destroyed it. The firstborn of sin, which was death. And this is all because the Father views the sacrifice of the firstborn who bore our iniquities in Isaiah 53.11. And Jesus brings the firstborn of all, Jesus, who he is, the firstborn of all creation, was resurrected on the day of firstfruits. In accordance with Leviticus 23, 10 and 11, <clears throat> 10 and 11, and 1 Corinthians 15, 23. And we don't have, we can't say more about that right now because we're out of time. About the day of firstfruits. But he was raised on the day of firstfruits. Remember what we covered last week, the day of firstfruits, was the first, it was the first day after the weekly Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's when he was raised. Now, I'm going to leave you with my translation of Hebrews 11.28, which all of this, these two messages, go to interpret Hebrews 11.28. Everything that I've said in these two messages go to interpret this verse. 
And hopefully you have a clearer perspective on it. Now, especially, especially, especially when we see, when we move just a little bit and we see it in a lenticular fashion. If you don't know what lenticular is, you're going to have to go back to the Jacob and Esau series to hear what lenticular is. But for those of us who do know what it is, if we move just a little bit, then we start to see the lenticular aspects of the scripture, which opens up a whole vista to us. So I'll leave you with my translation of Hebrews 11.28 and see if things don't all pop because of what we just said. I pray that it does. By faith, he, that is Moses, instituted the Passover and the pouring of the blood in order that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Father, we thank you that you have destroyed the firstborn of sin, which is death. And death has no more power over us because we know that Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has the keys of death and Hades. When we pass from this mortal shell, when we pass from this mortal shell, when we shuck it, we go right into the presence of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this. I ask specifically, Lord, that the words that were spoken today, that the Spirit would take these words and make them effective in those who are listening. I pray this in my Lord and Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.